Blog Talk Radio. Africa to move, 
the way we can start it with our party, get to introduce you to our political panelists and analysts for the day. Right now, we will bring in Brother Haki, and we'd like to say welcome to Africa on the Move, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Brother uh, brother Africa. My name is Haki Kamafi Mishoki, and you know, as always, you know, I'm all about the institution buildings. And one of the things over the weekend, a couple of events transpired that uh, <clears throat> somewhat I find very pleasurable. And, in fact, one of the reasons I find it very pleasurable is because one of the things that happens in society, that often you have these right-wing individuals who give very narratives, which is not based on reality, but simply based upon the political agenda. And so, therefore, as a consequence, none of the journalists really ever challenge these right-wing individuals <clears throat> for clarity. They simply let them get away with all kinds of disingenuous statements simply because it's all about uh, internalizing or, or formatting uh, this whole notion in terms of um, the legitimacy of um, right-wing ideas. So clearly, um, you know, this, this notion in terms of legitimizing these ideas is something that's been happening for a long, long time. <clears throat> a couple of things happened. Uh, first, there was this, a <clears throat> program out of, out of the U.K. Uh, there was a, a journalist out of the uh, BBC by the name of Andrew Neal, uh, he interviewed a Zionist by the name of Ben Shapiro. It's very interesting. He used his book to essentially um, indict him for the kind of hypocrisy, the demagoguery that is very much part of his whole agenda. Uh, he also underscored the point that, given the fact that you have this kind of demagoguery and this disingenuous kind of talking point, that what it does is further reinforces um, imperialism. Not only imperialism, but also fascism. And so Pointing that out uh, really irritated this guy to no end. In fact, the Zionist ended the discussion because he simply couldn't deal with the reality in terms of being confronted about his own ideas. Secondly, there's a black conservative who's a darling of the, uh, of the, of the U.S., uh, Candace Owens, and recently she was fired by Turning Point USA. Now, Turning Point USA is an organization uh, which is <clears throat> responsible for organizing conservative students on the university campuses. In event, her job as a black conservative is to denigrate African people. In other words, her job is to um, deny the existence in terms of the social, economic, political realities that African people find themselves confronted with in society. So in, in, in defining um, any kind of progressive speech as somewhat disingenuous, she sort of gives comfort to the right wing who want to believe, you know, all kinds of nefarious notions in terms of why African people are oppressed in, in, in Western society. So the mere fact that that is her job, she failed to understand that in doing so, one of the things you have to do, you have to stay on script. You, you, cannot, you cannot talk about things that re- realistically exist. In other words, the mistake that she made was that she actually talked about the fact that <clears throat> uh, she talked about the fact that Germany would have been great had Nazism been confined only within the confines of Germany. Of course, anybody who knows the history of Nazism knows the, the, the ideology of Nazism it's never national, it's international. And so, therefore, when we talk about the killing of people, you know, in Germany, that doesn't only apply to the killing of people in Germany, but the aspirations were to kill people outside of Germany as well who didn't fit the specifically archetype in which they felt uh, who deserved to live. So clearly, the Zionists, um, you know, in our organization, Turn from USA, understood that by saying this, that she gave some credence in terms of, you know, um, you know anti-Jewish sentiment, sentiment which means they felt that uh, was, was, which, which was what is in the best interest of Jewish people or the Zionist movement throughout the world. So as a consequence, we're making that mistake of actually talking about 
Zionism and I mean, um, excuse me, Nazism in a favorable light, she was consequently get, gotten rid of. They fired her. So clearly, she she failed to, failed to understand that you know it's okay to denigrate African people with faulty speech or disingenuous speech, but the moment you cross over and and, and, and you utilize disingenuous speech or pertaining to the Zionists, then there's a price to be paid. As a consequence, she was fired. But it's good to see that um, now they're hoping that she's going to understand something very, very important, where she was optimistic and she did everything she could in terms of undermining the movement of a justice for African people in society. Hopefully she'll be able to realize, you know, that she too in the final analysis is an African person. So I just want to close with that, Brother Africa, and, and I want to say, in addition, I just want to say that the institutions are so, so important in terms of information. We have to make sure that our children have access to information. We must. We must institutionalize the very idea in terms of access to information, not only just having access to information, but to being able to debate and to, and to engage in discourse around ideas. Because this is crucial, because we've got to keep in mind that when we talk about the onslaught of, of, of fascism, we've got to understand not only does it lead to totalitarianism, but in, but in fact, we have to understand that there's a large, large number of people, increasingly large number of people, you know, who are esoteric as far as the system is concerned, who must be eradicated. So we must educate our children, and we need to reinforce this this focus around education and information. And I want to thank you, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Next, we'll go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, Revolutionary greetings, Brother Africa, and the fellow panelists and the listening audience. Thanks for having me. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony, you now we're bringing Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher by faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Moses. And now we're going to bring in Brother Zubari. Brother Zubari, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you. This is Brother Jabari, resident researcher. Looking forward to another insightful program with my fellow panelists. I always consider this an honor and privilege. And I just want to say happy Mother's Day to all of our spirits, physical, spiritual, and ideological mothers out there that have done so much to help make the world a better place. Peace. Okay, panelists, let's get started with this party, and let's go right into this whole discussion of what's going on in your world and the community. We start out with you, Brother Hackey. Yes, uh, African, a couple of things, Brother Africa. First, African awareness. We're doing. We travel the road for liberation and freedom to Cuba. We'll be going to Guantanamo Bay. I'm sorry, Guantanamo, Santiago de Cuba, and Havana. The trip takes place July 24th to July 31st. And for more information, we ask people to call us at area code 
714-914-9435, or email us <coughs> at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. We encourage people firsthand to go to Cuba to see for themselves exactly why Cuba is such a great place, why it creates such intelligent, independent, and marvelous people, marvelous human beings. So it's important that we go and learn something and to engage in discourse with the Cubans and, and, and put, the, put the question to the Cuban in terms of, you know, how you feel in terms of contrasting the systems. You will see that the Cubans are free to articulate exactly what they feel in terms of the systems. If they disagree with something the Cuban government does, they'll tell you. If they agree with something the Cuban government does, they'll tell you that too. So there's a free exchange of ideas, so we encourage people to go to Cuba to see firsthand exactly the beauty that is known as Cuba. And the second thing, Brother Africa, one of the things, you know, um, and uh, you know, often, you know, we talk about um, <clears throat> the way in which war is utilized against the people. And often we don't understand that when we talk about war, it comes in many, 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 many fashions and many, many forms. Uh, one of the ways in which the West, particularly the U.S., one of the ways it weaponizes war, utilizes financial institutions. In particular, uses the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, and the bigger international settlements. And the way this works typically is that you need, in reference to the IMF, what it does is provide short-term loans, and particularly talk about stabilizing the economy, the currency of the country, or the host country, and the international reserves. In other words, in order to facilitate trade, they will allow these countries access to certain kind of Western capital. In the process, of course, the value of that capital would, would vary greatly, which means that irrespective of the terms of the, of the arrangement, uh, what happens is that given the, the, how the currency is, how the currency is, 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 is designed, uh, the Western nations determine the strength of that currency. So what happens is that in order for African nations to pay back the currency that they borrow for purposes of stabilizing the economy or just for reserves, it means that African economies have to pay back a lot of money, you know, for a very small sum of Western capital in terms of remaining viable. Secondly, the World Bank. Uh, one of the things when we talk about the World Bank in terms of loans, you know, to host nations, one of the things that the World Bank does is it, it lends loans, but on a long, only long-term loans. In other words, when you talk about big big projects like building dams and stuff like that or building roads, then you go to the World Bank. But of course, the terms are, as I articulated before, the terms are very, very shady. In other words, uh, the interest rates are exorbitant. In other words, what happens is that they essentially they just attract wealth from Africa to the West by using these interest rates. So the interest rates that the Africans get is not the same interest rates the rest of the world get. So the whole notion is to make sure that Africa remains dependent, remain impoverished, by have to simply have to pay back these debts that it gets from the West. And so we're very, very clear, unless Africa creates its own independent banks, um, you know, um, reserve banks, unless it has its own, unless it's in a position to establish the price of its own commodities, that Africa continues to be exploited. It's very, very simple. Now, one of the things is also important about Africa is that one of the things is that both the World Bank and International Monetary Fund operates under the National Security Council. Now, the question is, why would these banks operate on the National Security Conference? Very, very clearly, because like I said before, <clears throat> these institutions, these financial institutions, are weaponized to ensure the impoverishment of places like Africa. And so, therefore, what happens is they collectively get together and define ways in which to set interest rates or determine what would be financed and what wouldn't be financed to make sure that Africa remains underdeveloped. So this is the fundamental problem in terms of when Africa borrows money from the West. Now, to just to underscore the point, when it, a, couple, a couple of things you have to understand, that when we, when we talk about the, the assassination of Muammar Gaddafi of Libya, 
The reason why Muammar Gaddafi was assassinated was simply because he recognized the importance of Africa having his own central bank. That constitutes a threat to the West, which means that Africa position to control its own currency, the strength of its own currency, which means that U.S. exportation will no longer be viable, which means that Africa will truly on its role to be independent. Well, Muammar Gaddafi, as a result of that, had to be assassinated. Also, in Ethiopia, and when we talk about the chief engineer Bukele, who was assassinated, this brother was building this big dam project in Ethiopia. Now, if he was con- concluded with that project, he would have been successful in terms of creating massive amount of energy for Ethiopia, which made it possible for, ind- for Ethiopia to be truly independent. Well, you know what? Bukele could not be allowed to finish that project. As a consequence, he was killed. By killing him, that project was simply put on the shelf, which means that Africa export, Western exploitation of Africa continues. So we have to understand when we talk about war and how war is uh, utilized against people. We understand that war comes in many, fa- many, many, many shapes, many fashions, many forms, and that war don't have to be, you know, bang, bang, shoot them up. War can also be in, in, in the form of institute, financial institutions. So it's important that we understand that. It's important that Africa leadership understand the nature of the struggle, that there's this war, this, lo- this low-intensive war, it's being conducted against Africa. Okay, Brother Af- brother Haki, we now will go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and community? Certainly. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, is organizing African Liberation Day, Palestine Day 2019. Our theme this year is Generations of Resistance and Revolts, Rebellions and Revolutions as Illuminated in Cuba, Haiti, Libya, Palestine, and Venezuela. Smash the repression industrial complex worldwide and remembering and honoring the birthdays of Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X on their birthdays. Uh, This will take place this Saturday, May 18th, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, U.S. This will be a Pan-African International Revolutionary Podcast Symposium. Please call 202-239-2676 or visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. Also, this is this month uh, marks the 40th, 47th anniversary of the arrest of um, Asada Shakur, uh, Malik Zaid Shakur, and Sundiata Kohli in New Jersey for allegedly shooting uh, State Trooper Warner Foster. Every year around this time, uh, uh, let's see, peop, uh, the media reminds people that uh, that Asada uh, uh, Shakur uh, uh, allegedly shot Werner Foster, and uh, they reiterate the bounty that is on, the, the, the price that is on her head for her, her capture. She is currently living in exile in Cuba. Uh, and uh, and still uh, is persecuted for advocating for uh, for the liberation of African people. 
and uh, and uh, also next week is uh, next Sunday is Malcolm X's uh, birthday, as well as that of folks you met. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Now we'll move to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world community? Well, um, probably the key event going on right now at the Venezuelan Embassy is uh, is is being occupied by left wing groups that support uh, the Maduro government and uh, and. Uh, the opposition is is has the place um, the police and the and the officials are trying to oust people from the embassy and they're not allowing food in we cut off the electricity et cetera and so people are asked to support the situation at the Venezuelan embassy in d c uh, also Chelsea Manning is has held out against the grand jury that was trying to get her to to uh oust out out the uh the people who who leaked uh the information uh, uh to to uh the news and uh she they're trying to discover her sources, et cetera, et cetera. And so she's she's out of the prison right now because the grand jury is it has been disbanded, but there's a new Jan jury coming up, and they expect the same thing to happen again. All right, thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to our listening audience, this is Africa on the Move. If you have any, anything that you'd like to share with what's going on in your world and community, you can do so now by dialing 323-679-0841 and hit 1. We now will go to Brother Zabari. Brother Zabari, welcome to Africa on the Move. In regards to what's going on, I recently read an article dealing with the car manufacturer Tesla, excuse me, technology company Tesla. And Tesla has announced that it's going to have a car that will have the ability to, once um, it diagnoses a potential issue or something that it knows is definitely wrong, it will be able to order the car parts for you. You won't have to do anything, it will do it itself. Now, we're giving cars these kind of advanced capabilities. We have to be mindful because Who's to say that if the car has that kind of ability, somebody can't hack into it where it's just trying to get information off of your every movement day in and day out because it's so technology-based. And as we know, technology is only as good as the hands that it's in. So if the car has the ability to have a computer that can um, work on its own, it definitely has the capability of being hacked into for dubious purposes. Yeah, that's true. You know, one of the questions when we talk about technology, I'm just wondering if I get your response to this whole issue of is all technology good technology? Panelists, how would y'all be that question? My, my answer would be it depends upon how it is used. Uh, I give a, a, a concrete example of that. Technology, for example, can be used uh, to uh, uh, to make uh, tasks easier for workers to accomplish. 
such as automating certain repositive or, uh, or, or, uh, or repetitive tasks. However, technology, uh, like any tool, in the wrong hands can be used to undermine uh, uh, the, uh, the interests of workers by, uh, by displacing them. And using it or to make uh, you know things more difficult for workers uh, by increasing uh, production demands, etc. And so it really depends, like any like any other tool, uh, who is controlling this technology and in whose interest. Anybody else have to weigh on that question? I concur with um, the sentiment echoed by Brother Anthony. I would just like to add that we have to understand that, especially when you look at those that are um, pro-West, at an accelerating rate, they're finding ways to co-opt and corrupt technology so they can be used against the people. perfect example is I was reading about a robot and because they were able to study marine life, this animal was able to adapt to the different movements that um, those animals we find underwater are able to do. It's interesting because there's a Bible verse that talks about if you observe the animals, you can learn a lot. It's very interesting that it shows that they have no limits they won't go to to use that which is natural and authentic as a means of bringing down your demise, and you're thinking it's a joke because oftentimes we see things alluded to with the way they do experiments or Mimic the animals. Perfect example is the book, The Island of Dr. Moreau, where you saw these animal-human hybrids, and yet we see today how they try to study certain things that animals are able to do, like certain animals can regrow body parts, and yet they try to experiment on this. When we look at what they do on people, and you see that there's an unfortunate trend that, depending on whose hands it is, it could be using things that you know to bring about your demise, yet they bombard you with this stuff on a daily basis to get you conditioned to it. They don't want you to question them, but they want you to get the condition and think that this is the way things should be, that those who have the control should just be able to use technology to basically keep their foot on your neck. I concur. Uh, I concur. Uh, I, I think it's real danger in terms of a lot of technology. You know, simply because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it, and that is a moral question. And I think it's one of the questions unless it has to be addressed. Uh, I think – Particularly when you talk about something like face recognition, and and and, and Brother Amph is correct. Uh, one of the things when you talk about you know the bias that implicit in technology, often we talk about the algorithms that they created in terms of facial recognitions. Well, according to who the programmer is, it's going to reflect his or her biases in terms of facial recognition. So you conceivably have a situation where someone you know, have a, of a of a same uh, ethnic group uh, based upon that similarity or maybe perceived as someone else, which means that, that potential, potentially that individual will find themselves in serious trouble or even killed because of the, the inadequacy of the technology. So that's, that is a fundamental problem. But regardless of that, even though you have this problem in terms of this 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 this, this, this problem with the technology, uh, those in power are helping to continue with the technology, even though they know there's a tremendous problem with the technology. In other words, what they're saying is that any justice inflicted upon the people is not really important to them. What is more important to them is to create this 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 this, this, this perception that um, the people in power are omnipresent. They're everywhere, and so therefore they're watching everything, they're monitoring everything, and that their people are under scrutiny all the time. 
So for them, that is more important than fundamental question in terms of justice. So I think this potential in terms of, you know, uh, the abuse of technology is very, very important. Another thing, Brother Africa, also when we talk about, when it comes to just working, one of the things, we, you know, we, we talk about people, you know, everybody would like to have a job. I mean, people want to work. A sense of giving you a sense of independence, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of being somebody. People want to work. So despite what the right wing might say about people being lazy, people want to work. I mean, if in fact those options, if they have the opportunity to work, avail itself. That is reality. Uh, but when you, when you focus on the bottom line, when you focus on quote-unquote productivity in terms of maximizing profits, then certainly machines can accommodate that. Uh, machines don't need breaks. They can run continuously. Uh, there, there are more money to be made by utilizing machines. But the downside is that you get rid of lots and lots of people who don't have access to work, which means that what do you do with all these people that you create who don't have access to work? You ultimately create problems. You know, for the society, because now you've got millions upon millions of people with nothing to do. It's inevitable that those millions and millions of people are somehow going to not only be disgruntled, but express that this, the discontent by actually go taking it to the streets. So in, so in the final analysis, then we talk about a certain amount of instability for the system as a result of a large number of people that have access to work. So technology is something that should be taken very, very lightly. To simply do it simply because the technology exists is not always an intelligent thing to do. All right, panelists, what we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls. This is Africa on the Moon. When we come back, we would like to entertain a little bit about this concept of the Mother Day and some of the things that were shared earlier around the Venezuela embassy and this whole thing about Africa being in debt and its exploitation. Then we are following to our theme for today, which is the media, what the media is not talking about. So we're going to pause for the calls. Those who are listening, if you want to shine in on this particular segment, what is happening in your community and the world, please do so by calling 323-679-0841 and hit 1. So we're going to be right back, and in honor of those who celebrate Mother Day, to all our mothers and beautiful daughters, we know it's hard being a mother. We want you to remember, no matter how hard it may be, keep your head up. We're going to make it. This is for you. Say the black of the best, the sweet of the juice. I say the dark of the flesh and the deep of the roots. I give a holler to my sisters on welfare. If don't nobody else can. And uh, I know they like to beat you down a lot. When you come around the block, brothers clown a lot. So sweet, don't cry, dry your eyes, never let up. Since a man can't make one, he has no right to tell a woman when and where to create. 
throughout the year fall on this holiday. Now, yeah, one-third of all flowers that are sold for a whole year, a third of it comes during this time, during this weekend on Mother's Day. About 122 million phone calls are made to moms in America on Mother's Day. You you have also this whole issue of four out of the earliest Mother's Day celebration was in Greece. Mother's Day is the busiest day of the year for restaurants. It's a day where people used to go to restaurants. Restaurants make plenty of money this time of year. This is for Mother's Day. Um, there's some other little factors I'd like to share with you, but for right now, I'd just like for y'all weigh in in terms of in terms of these celebrations. Are they really good celebrations for African people and people oppressed, or have we been conditioned to accept these 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 holidays that come from other people's tradition? Panelists, what do y'all make of this this whole concept of Mother Day? Particularly given how this society have no respect, or Western society really have no respect for women. I think you make a good point, point, Brother Africa. Uh, One of the things that people need to understand about capitalism is that capitalism has a way of turning everything into a commodity. And uh, and even the reverence that people have for, uh, for, for women is turned into a commodity. And what I mean by that is that uh, Mother's Day becomes another opportunity for buying and selling, pretty much the way Christmas is commercialized in capitalist societies around the world. Now, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Africans, and from what I read, indigenous uh, people throughout the world have always had a high reverence for women. And their, and their role in society, but uh, especially as mothers, wives, and uh, and uh, you know the first teachers of our people. And uh, so, uh, in generally, uh, in generally, those types of societies didn't need a special day to uh, you, you know to have reference for the mother in society. They always, uh, uh, you know, that was always uh, a, a part a, a, a part of uh, our cultural makeup. And uh, what, uh, what 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 uh, what capitalism does, it uh, it turns that uh, reference into a commodity, and makes it a day for uh, uh, you know for uh, 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 splurging. On uh, uh, spending uh, lavish, lavish gifts and events that the masses of the people cannot afford. While we wait for other panelists and other people to weigh in on this question, let me give you a couple other more facts. Facts about Mother Day. It says in 2018, over 23 billion was spent on Mother Day. On average, shoppers paid was spent 180. $180 on gifts for their mother. A nationwide total of $4.6 billion was spent on jewelry and $4.4 billion on dinners or lunches. Then it also goes to talk about this question that every Mother's Day there are approximately $152 million Mother's Day cars spent. 
So just look at this money that this institution is making. So right there, we have some callers who are just weighing in. We're going to like to go to our callers. Let's see. Take one of our callers. Let's see who we have here. Uh, we have caller. Uh, I must have lost him. He was, caller was on earlier. We'll come back. Okay, panelists, your response? Brother, Brother Jail? Okay, let's go to brother call nine four three five. We're called nine four three five. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Your question or comment. Call nine four three five. Thank you, bro. I don't know if you can hear me. Yes we can. We can hear you loud and clear. All right. I just wanted to see if we could put this in in some kind of perspective because I think looking at the fact that Mother's Day has been commercialized is very important. But we also have to look at the history. Mother's Day was created by Julie Ward Howell in 1870. And when it was created, if you look at her Mother's Day manifesto, it starts off with, Arise all women who have hearts, whether you are baptized, be thee of water or of tears. And it goes on, and it's really a anti-war statement, a statement that talks about how no mother should have to have her son trained to kill some other mother's son in some kind of battle, etc. So Mother's Day started out as a day against the war and against the Civil War. And since then, it has been reinterpreted by capitalism to mean a day that you go out and spend ridiculous amounts of money on your mother to show love like the only way you can show love is by going to capitalism and wasting your money. And this is nothing new because even Trump talks about the reinterpretation of reality, which he does often. The reinterpretation is of facts. How do you change something that meant one thing to become something that means something else? How do you change the concept in 1967, 68 of black power, which meant black folks having the power, the political power, the economic power, the social power to determine their own destiny to saying it means registering to vote. You understand? And look at it even more lately today when you have a news media that lies to you about what's going on in Venezuela and just give you blatant, outright lies and then come along a week later and tell you semi-truths. Yeah. And you act as if you don't know that there was a difference, that it's all the same, it's all good. So I'm just saying that Thanks to everybody who talks about how this reinterpretation, how this uh, analysis that, 
You know, the only way you can show love to your mother, the only way you can show affection, etc., is by giving rich people your money. So I thank you very much, my brother, for today's program. Okay, we thank you for your contribution. Anyone else would like to respond to this concept of Mother Day? If you do some, some well, I would say some people have written in history that Mother Day started out in Europe. It started out in 250 B.C. during the ancient Romans time. And it started out in honoring, in honoring goddesses. Now, I thought about that, and I know we got to be careful as oppressed people on the social question of presentation history. I think, Brother Anthony, you alluded to it earlier. I know culturally, historically, African people have always placed you know, great value uh, on the role of women, on females, what have you. And it's hard for me to believe that somewhere in our history, even probably before that was Europe, we did not have some kind of celebration or some kind of event where we played privilege to our mother, to the woman. And just the notion of the narrative of this coming out of something outside of our culture, I just wondering in terms of, um, is this one of the many examples how things may have been borrowed or taken and been given credit to a region or area of people where historically we know that's not true. So I'm just wondering, is this something we should follow? The brother made a good example in terms of trying to be in dialectics with how we're about today, but how are other people view it? Panelists? Yeah, well, yeah, well, my, my position is this. Uh, this question in terms of Mother Day, I, I think we can't adequately assess the true meaning of this without understanding one fundamental premise. And that is, in the context of the West, we talk about patriarchal society, we're talking about elevating men over women. The problem is that when you elevate men over women, then what happens is it's not intuitive. It's not instinctive. Uh, men tend to do things which are not particularly well thought out. Women, on the other hand, who are the bearer of life, tend to be more instinctive, tend to think more in terms of what they do. And so, therefore, when you look at traditional African society, which is headed by women, there's a certain amount of um, visibility, a certain amount of power given to women, simply because there's an, an instinctive understanding that women are going to do that which is right for the community. And so, therefore, evolving society, a, mater, a maternal society in which, you know, society is off, excuse me, society was organized around women, it's much more wholesome, much more uh, holistic society. So, I think in the context of the West, when we talk about, you know, you know, you know, contribution, contribution, you know contributing to, to the essence of womenhood, uh, one of the things we can understand often is we understand it's disingenuous, particularly when you look at it medically, when you look at it in terms of the kind of deaths that uh, result from from women simply having children. I mean, it's an astronomical portions in America. Uh, particularly, it's, it's really even more problematic. We talk about African women giving birth and the, the, the ensuing death of African women giving birth to children. So clearly there is, there is, there is a, 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 a gulf, uh, there's a huge gulf between this whole desire in terms of honoring women and actually honoring women. So I think it speaks back into this unconscious hatred toward women. I mean, one of the things is that I think also we have to keep in mind is there's a tremendous amount of hatred toward women in the Western context when we talk about um, sexuality. One of the ways in which they attempt to control women's sexuality is by de- demonizing women. Women are called everything under the sun, whole bitches, uh, whatever, whatever. And the whole point is to, is to undermine their sexuality because one of the things we understand 
just in terms of the flow of things, that the capacity of love is greater among women than it is men. And I think for the West, they're particularly threatened by the idea that women are actually musicians in the drop sheet when it comes to sexual activity. And I think they don't want that. And so what they do is they denigrate and they put women down to make them feel less than. And so therefore to justify their quote unquote perceived superiority over women. So I think as long as we think in terms of that patriarchal mindset, then we can't truly value the essence of womanhood. And this is one of the problems that we have. One of the things I like about traditional African society, uh, even now, one of the things often people, when they talk to women, they refer to them as mama. And we used to do that a long, long time ago in the African community. We used to refer to, to not, not just your mother, but all women as mama. In other words, you know, you recognize that, you know, you know, you know the value that you have in terms of humanity or society, and you also recognize, you know, that because she has such a valuable place in society that she should, she's got to be respected. And so you don't call out a name. You call her mama, mama so-and-so. Or if she has a child, mama, you know, mama so-and-so, um, uh, mama, mama, mama John or whatever. So I think that um, this notion that the West can adequately appreciate the womanhood or the essence of womanhood, I think is a fundamental problem. And I think, I think the society struggles a great deal in terms of this hatred toward women. I don't think most people want to talk about that. But I think that is a very, very, is very much a reality, particularly when you look at the kind of policies that have been put in place in terms of demonizing and undermining the, the interests of women. But clearly this, this, this love for women is not as much as those want us to believe. So this question in terms of, of, of Mother's Day is, is purely commercial. It has nothing to do in terms of love for women. It has more to do in terms of dollars and cents. I think we have to fundamentally understand that reality in the society. I mean, clearly it was in um, stark contradiction, particularly in the U.S., when you have a president that will make a public state statement that women like to be grabbed by their pee. You understand what I'm saying? And yeah. to just you know, pu- push this day, it's very, it's very hypocritical. So I wonder if we've just been trained like a, a flop of sheep to continue to follow other people, um, other people, um, suggestions and norms, etc. In other comments before we take our break and we're gonna go into what the media is not talking about. In other comments on this question. Real, I just thought real, it was real, interesting real, to give a perspective. Real quickly about Africa, real quickly. Um, when we talk about conditioning, we talk about programming, it's very interesting. In order to make cold tea, what do we do? We boil the water to make cold tea. It seems to me that you could skip a step and simply make cold tea with cold water. But that's just me. But in any event, in terms of conditioning, one of the things is that, you know, often, you know, women are presented in the Western context in terms of being scantily dressed. Uh, the emphasis is that women have nothing to really offer other than their sexuality. And sometimes it makes me sad when you see these, you know, these beautiful women out there gyrating and doing all these kind of things with their beautiful form, uh, you know, uh, doing these kind of things on the guys, you know, of visibility, fame, or getting paid. Uh, but it seems to me that a certain amount of um, uh, 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 delegitimization of womanhood, when you when you when you constantly promote women as sexual things and not you know individuals who are capable of excess thought, particularly when you talk about maturity, and there's no question about it. When it comes to maturity, women mature faster than than than, than, than men, and that's very very true. On a whole, women tend to be more intelligent than men. So the mere fact that you have a piece of society which says that, you know, that their women are second class speaks volumes to just how threatened they feel. And if they're threatened by women, 
how how much can you really appreciate women if you're threatened by women, as opposed to understanding women's great contribution to society? So I think that your question is well taken. I think uh, you know this whole this whole notion in terms of uh, internalizing things without thinking about them. I think it's I think it's very incumbent upon us to start thinking about things simply simply internalizing things and believing them to be absolutely correct. You know, Brother Moses and the callers that raised the issue about uh, U.S. and its relationship to Venezuela, and Brother Moses, you talk about the embassy. I think we'd like to maybe give it some attention uh, right now, if we can, to let the listening world know that um, it's my understanding as of yesterday in the embassy in Washington, D.C., the Venezuelan embassy, Brother Moses, and others can speak and call in on it if they have more information, is that the U.S. government has now turned off the electricity from the building, they have turned off the water, and they have turned off the life, the lights. They are trying to suffocate and force the progressive forces who are occupying the building with permission to come out so they can put in the reactionary forces in the building, which is totally against international law. I mean, this has been one of the first times that I think in history where a country had attempted to do something such as taking out the legitimate forces from the embassy and put forces in that have no relationship to the people and the government. So the people are asking for support, asking for help. The word needs to get out. And if you can find out more information, maybe by contacting different groups such as the Defender or the anti-war groups, it will be important that you know we stay in tune and try to figure out what impact can we have to enter into this battle and support our brothers and sisters in Venezuela. So um, anyone else would like to raise some issues, concerns, or have another update on the status of the Venezuelan embassy and what is taking place? Um, yes. Could I add something yes. to that? Let's go ahead, brother. Uh, brother Africa? Certainly. Go ahead. Um, it was under the order of uh, the the uh, the police forces in DC uh, uh, in, in DC that 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 uh, that ordered and uh, in collusion with the uh, with with the uh, uh, with the coup plotters to uh, turn off the electricity and water to the Venezuelan embassy in total in violation of international law. Because uh, uh, under international law, the government, uh, the country in which the embassy is situated, is supposed to protect that embassy against, uh, you know, any any sort of uh, sabotage or criminal activity. And it is the and it is the government of uh, uh, of the ruling country. That has authority over what goes on in uh, inside the embassy. In the case of the Venezuelan embassy, the uh, the resistant group that is inside the embassy is in the embassy as guests of the legitimate government of Venezuela. So it is the U.S. that is acting unlawfully in terms of uh, not uh, you know not ensuring. The security of that embassy against those uh, those people who are attempting to coup against uh, Venezuela, and the U.S. That's is actually siding with the coup plotters, 
And uh, so it's, it sets a very dangerous pre- precedent, and uh, that's why, uh, and that's why the people are persevering to try to protect embassy against this sort of takeover. Because if it were to proceed in D.C., it could be replicated elsewhere. Throughout the world, I agree with Anthony. That's that's an interesting point because the the embassies are in fact sovereign, and for the U.S. to do that. It's in, in violation of international law. Uh, it's interesting if someone actually tried to um, do that to a U.S. embassy anywhere in the world and see what the response would be. I guarantee you there'd be a response. Um, so clearly, uh, when we talk about respect for law or respect for their own laws or respect for international law, this this U.S. government um, is a very um, um, ruthless cobble of individuals have no respect for any law. I don't care what kind of law you're talking about. And so it sort of underscores exactly, you know, what the U.S. is all about. But then again, we talk about the kind of desperation that exists in society. And so because there's so much desperation in terms of maintaining control and maintaining longevity, they didn't want to violate any law, irrespective of how brazen that violation is. So clearly I think that, you know, that the world, you know, should be aware you know, that not only what it's doing is criminal, but understanding that at some point, potentially, it could happen to your embassy. So it's really, so clearly across the board, it's problematic. All right, panelists, what we're going to do is we're going to pause for this call. When we come back, we're going to speak to the theme, what the media is not talking about. And one of our first article we're going to talk about is Jimmy Carter lectures Trump. U.S. is the most warlike nation in history of the world. Is this true? We're going to talk about that. But right now, let's pause for this call. And since this is Mother Day, we can't forget about our mothers in Palestine. The suffering that's going on in Palestine and where it has turned their eyes, not only in Palestine, but throughout the world, the Congo, Venezuela, Cuba. But in symbolic, we don't want to forget our mothers in Palestine. This message for all conditions. This, this message for all conditions where the mothers are brutally being brutalized and the world has turned their back on them in terms of those who have power. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the move. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries. Their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. freedom. Palestine Palestine. needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine. Needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs there seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom. Take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice. 
That's what we've got to do, cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed we need a new beginning let us plant the seed plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Palestine needs her freedom Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Palestine need our freedom, they need our love. We come and give our support to the Palestinian people and pay homage to swear to their mothers. Our mothers should be recognized and be living under conditions where they should not be forced under total domination by force. Yes, Palestine need their freedom like all people do. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon. We're going to make our transition now to what the media is not talking about. That was an article written in Talisul on April the, April the 18, 2019, written by Brett Wilkins, titled, Jimmy Carter Lectures Trump, U.S. is Most Warlike Nation in History of the World. He said the only U.S. president to complete his term without war, military attacks, or occupation has called the United States the most warlike nation in the history of the world. Parents, we can start right here. What is your take on this narrative that the former U.S. President Jim Carter has made as assessed the present reality of the United States in this history? Start off with you, Brother Anthony. Okay, that observation reminds me of an observation Martin Luther King Jr. made 52 years ago. In, in in his speech on why he opposed the Vietnam War. And he pointed out that the U.S. is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And uh, 50, uh, 52 years later, that's uh, still as true as ever. I'm, uh, I mean, the, the U.S. is in, in open warfare against about a half dozen countries around the world and uh in uh in unofficial or secret war against uh uh, uh many more mostly in Africa and Central and South America and so I think it's a very telling observation 
and and I've also thought the, that his observation that the massive amount of uh, military spending done by the U.S. Uh, undermines spending uh, 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 in other areas, such as infrastructure, uh, health care, and education. Thank you, lost brother Anthony, brother Haki. Also, in this article, he make a real interesting um, statement that I thought real interesting in terms of supporting his premise of the U.S. and its warlike machine. He stated that the U.S. has been at peace only only for 16 of its 242 years as a nation, counting wars, military attacks, and military occupation. There have been actually only five years of peace in U.S. history. What you make up that narrative, Brother Haki? Well, it, uh, it speaks a great deal in terms of this um, imperialist mindset that exists, you know, in, in, in the leadership of the of the U.S. Uh, one of the things is that you know when we talk about you know World War One, World War Two, we talk about supposedly U.S. involvement in terms of you know making the world a place. We talk about these these misadventures. We talk about military uh, uh, conquest throughout the world. It has nothing to do with promotion of promotion of uh, justice, promotion of fairness, promotion of you know common decency. It always has to do in terms of material gain for a very small percentage of the population. In particular, we're talking about the ruling class. So this so this propensity in terms of the ruling class to initiate war for the sole purpose of, of, of material gain. It's been going on for a long, long time. So for 242 years, only 16 years of your existence has been peaceful. It speaks values in terms of Martin Luther King's statement. So when Martin Luther King talks about he has been a great purveyor of violence in the world, he's not talking historically. He's talking about what's currently happening now. And I think recently, they, Brother Africa, they did, they did a poll. Uh, the Pew did a poll and it, uh, interviewed 30 nations, and they asked about the question in terms of the propensity of the U.S. to, to commit violence. And most of them agree overwhelmingly. Ninety percent of them agree that the biggest biggest problem for the world is U.S. power and influence. So this propensity for violence is very much American. So H.R. Brown, Jamil Alamine, would often say violence is American as apple pie. And besides so it is. It is the most violent society on the face of the earth. And what is interesting is that how so many people, uh, irrespective of the history, still think that America. It's a place of peace or a place of love. It's very, very interesting. But it speaks values in terms of the psychological makeup of the populace. One of the things the American system does a very good job of is creating a narrative in the minds of the people, which is totally uh, uh, unrelated to the reality of the situation. So for those people in America who think that America is peace-loving and that America only can do good, uh, they're, sadly mis- they're sadly mistaken. But in their minds, given the given the, 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 the they have internalized. They actually believe that America is very peaceful. And so when you talk about the situation, look at Venezuela. Why would the U.S. go to Venezuela? Why would they undermine the Venezuelan economy? Why would they create a scenario in which hundreds of thousands of people are going to lose their life for no reason at all when you simply can have trade and everything you want? They don't stop to think that the treatment in terms of what the U.S. is doing is not only wrong, but it's barbaric. They don't see that. What they see is that, well, you know, apparently it serves the U.S. good, and so, therefore, we support it. So whether or not the support is a result of racism 
or is result or is the result of ignorance when they is clear they support it. So clearly, you know, this 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 this, this lack of understanding, lack of clarity that exists in the minds of American people, most American people, is something that we have to come to grips with. Because as long as they can implement, you know, uh these narratives which suggest that no matter what they do, it's justifiable. We can make more a more atrocities happening throughout the world. And keep in mind by the African I close with this. One of the things when we talk about specifically we talk about propaganda, we talk about in the White House. The White House specifically has a team of social service and support team with job is specifically in terms of creating policy to ensure the further the aims of propaganda. Clearly it's working. So unless we can find some way to diffuse that that, that muddy thinking, that disingenuous understanding of where the world really works, that disingenuous understanding of the way America works, until we can do that, then what's gonna happen? America will continue to commit these atrocities, but ultimately these atrocities that commit around the world will come as Malcolm X would say, will come to the roots. So we can anticipate these same atrocities committed abroad, this war this 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 this, this preoccupation with war, we can anticipate at some point they're coming right here to America where they will implement that same war against his own citizens. So it's clearly an irony. You know, Jabari, one of the um, critiques from this article talks about why China is doing so much better economically than the U.S. is directly related to the reality that China has not been in war. They have been in peace for a long time. As a result of it, they have been able to use their resources that will make them become more more productive in in, in the area of the economy. Now, it talks about how this whole question that the U.S. has spent over three trillion on military spending. Now, three trillion. Now, he stated that they could take one trillion dollar and create the whole infrastructure building inside the U.S. would be a lot more profitable. But yet they chose not to do that. Where well, China have taken their money and done just that. So what do you make of this whole question of, based upon you reading this article, what do you make of this whole question of why China has been able to be uh, so um, prosperous in terms of economic development and grow a lot more than the U.S. in terms of economic development? It's evident that their focus on that which um, sustains longevity. Because you got to understand, if you're going to engage in funny spending that does not secure longevity, you're going to create a series of catastrophes that you have to continue to deal with because you have nothing to keep you stable. So if you're going to have sustained instability, these things are going to have to be those type of conflicts are going to have to be undertaken so that you can have what's going to add to your material wealth. Because one thing they've realized is that it doesn't begin or end with material wealth, whereas Western nations, unfortunately, have that kind of ideology. So the more they have, the more they want to continue to take versus developing uh, infrastructure and gifts that can be shared with everyone else. It's all about what's going to be help them to um, have more influence and possession. You know, Brother Moses and panelists, I like to do the weigh in on this as well. One of the things that's very striking in terms of the sophistication of theft, how, how it is played out in the system or on capitalism, is how they appropriate money. Now, according to this article, they have, the U.S. has spent over $5.9 trillion waging war on Iraq. The question becomes, who 
who are the individuals or who what is the sector they are that is receiving the five point nine trillion dollars? Because we understand as far back as the sixties, it has been reported, it has been shown, it has been documented that walls only benefit a few people. There's a, a few rich and wealthy people. And in this area we talk about the military industrial complex. So this seems to be like a sophisticated scheme for stealing and corruption. Brother Moses, the panelist, your response to that? Yes, this uh, this is uh military industrial complex baby. Uh they they perpetuate these wars and they profit from these wars and uh they've infiltrated the government and uh they have people in Congress uh and all over their their stooges and lackeys are, are apologizing for for their behavior and uh you know the it's it's just a lot of money that could be going to 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 the social programs and uh it could could be putting people first but we're putting the profit drive and the wars in at first and uh it's a tragedy uh let me say that president carter has come out before or uh Calling Israel an apartheid state, but he had to retract. He, he later on retracted his apologize, etc. But he he comes out with these statements, but but when they when they confront him on him, he he backs down somehow. Uh, that's unfortunate. Thank you. I think that's because he's a Democrat. And uh, and uh, and one of the things, if you're gonna be in a Democratic Party, you gotta play play by their rules, so to speak. And uh, that's uh, that is rather unfortunate, as to correct uh, uh, correctly point out, Brother Moses. Uh, I want to uh, speak to a comment in terms of why uh, so many people in the U.S. Uh, tend to perceive U.S. policy as, pe- as peaceful, and I think I think the part of that problem is that there are two sources: the uh, the corporate media and the educational system, which are, which are controlled by the same uh, by, by the same uh, sector, the uh, the ruling bourgeoisie of the U.S. and they inculcate these ideas. And encourage people to go along with U.S. policy, even though it's, a, it's against the interests of the masses of working people in this society. And uh, and uh, that's why, you know, and the way to counter that is that those of us who uh, who, who know the truth, we're under the obligation to teach it. And spread it as far as uh, far and wide as possible, and uh, and uh, we have to educate our children, uh, you know, about the truth, uh, the true history. Otherwise, they'll believe the distorted history uh, 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 of Mother's Day and, uh, and and other events around the world, and uh, they and uh, you know and have a warped understanding. Of, uh, 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 of of human relationships in the world, and bear in mind that it is from the youth 
that the U.S. military gets its labor from. So we, it, it becomes critically important that we educate our youth, especially, as to the truth as to the truth of uh, U.S. history and its violent nature. You know, you know, Brother Africa, uh, that five point nine trillion you talk about your military expenditures includes Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. So that's a tremendous amount of money. But what is interesting is that you know when we talk about your congressional allocation for war. Uh, the Pentagon only requested uh, something like $716 billion, uh to fight his wars. Well, the Congress went step further and actually gave them $1.4 trillion in terms of fighting their wars. So that's very, very interesting that uh, when we talk about influence, we can underscore, and Brother Robert talked about that, uh, uh, when we talk about the role of lobbyists play in terms of, you know, uh, you know getting with these politicians and, and, and talking to them about the importance in terms of financing war. So the beneficiaries are clear. It's the defense industry. These are very wealthy individuals, extremely wealthy. And the irony is that nothing that they do contributes to the overall uh, productivity of society. In fact, everything they do contributes to the problems, the economic yields of society. Because keep in mind, when you use those explosives, those explosives, when those jets go down, uh, when, you, when you fire off the, you know, the, the missiles and so forth and so on, you know, those things have to be replenished. They have to be uh, uh, rebuilt. So these guys are making trillions upon trillions of dollars. And meanwhile, when you look at the U.S. infrastructure in terms of how poor it is, that they won't allocate a single, a single trillion dollars for the infrastructure of the country. Now, keep in mind, I think it's important that people understand that none of this is about economics. I think one of the problems that, you know, we, 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 we get ourselves in a bind because we want to believe that when we talk about U.S. foreign policy, or, the, or, or government functioning in, in general, we like to think that we're talking about economics. But it's not about economics. It's about power, pure and simple. Economically speaking, it makes more sense in terms of taking $1 trillion, putting it into the economy, which is the economy, create jobs, enhance the infrastructure, create a, a, a better infrastructure in terms of facilitating, you know, the, uh, the, you know uh, the movement of products from one place to another. It makes much more sense. Uh, so you have this 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 this, this um, uh, impact, this very positive impact, in terms of uh, you know improved infrastructure and overall productivity of society. So the mere fact that they won't do that has nothing to do with just economics. This is what we must understand. It has zero to do with economics. When we talk about a decent wage for people, it makes sense to have a decent wage for people. Number one, a couple of things. Number one, when you talk about decent wage for people, people who are working class tend to what? They tend to spend. Because the bottom line is that they don't have enough enough resources in terms of actually being able to accumulate or to save. So what they do, they spend it. Uh, secondly, if people had the opportunity in terms of better wages, when they spend it to the economy, it has a, it has a multiply effect. And it stimulates the economy. It's that economy actually grows. And so those individuals out here with their businesses actually are position, you know, in a position to actually, to actually sell, which means that they make money, which means they enhance the tax basis because they're making more money. So economically, it makes more sense to have more money flowing through the system. But that's not what's happening because it's not about economics. It's about power. And this is what we understand. The ruling class got to decide what they wanted. Uh, you know, the Secretary of State Pompeo talks about the fact, you talk about the American experiment. Essentially what he's saying is that we got people so confused, we can do any damn thing we want to do. Another way of putting it is that uh, Carl Rove, a former uh, uh, representative for uh, a, states, uh, a statesman for uh, George W. Bush, 
he's saying that we make the rules. We don't, we, you know, we don't, we don't listen. We don't listen to the rules. We don't, we don't respect rules. We make the rules. In other words, you know, we'll do whatever we have to do in terms of empowering the one percent, the capitalist class in society, the oligarchs. This is what it's all about. They want to maintain their power. The only way they can maintain that power is to make sure that everyone is impoverished. That's the only way they can do it. So as a consequence, you see the, 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 the diminishing uh, numbers of middle-income people in society. They're going from the backbone of society to being very minuscule. In other words, it's in, interest, it's in their interest to make sure that people are poor. Because if people are poor, in their mind, they're not in a position to fight back. And so, therefore, they want a fundamental impoverishment of the whole society. They want a situation where they're at the top, they have all the power, everyone else, everyone else is simply a serve or, or a slave. This is the bottom line. This is reality. So we're not talking about economics. We're talking about power. And until people get that in their head that you're not talking about economics, you're talking about power, people are going to continue to, you know, give all kinds of praise, you know, to the ruling class of the guys that what they're doing is good for society and not understanding fundamentally what they're doing is a bankrupt society for the sole purpose of empowering themselves. So it's all about power. You know, Brother Hackey, you just sort of ties into the statement, which I found was very interesting in terms of there was a survey done in 2013 by many countries, by Wynn and the Gallup poll, and it identified the United States as the greatest threat to world peace. And there was a 2017 Pew Research poll found that a record number of people in 30 surveys of nations viewed the U.S. power and influence as a major threat, a major threat to peace and security. Now, the perception of the United States outside this country is totally different from the perception from within. What can be done to change that perception from within and get people to look at objectively what America is really is, panelists? Brother Africa, can yes. I respond? Yeah, sure. It's open, uh, I think, all right. I think what can be done is um, is we have to teach our people history from the perspective of the world, particularly uh, from the perspective of uh, of our homeland, uh, you know, how it affects Africa and Africans in the diaspora, and, uh, and not from uh, just the perspective of what goes on inside the U.S. Because as I stated earlier, uh, the corporate media... And the uh, and, and the publishers of the textbooks that are uh, uh, that are used by children, they control uh, the information in, inside this country, and that is why the perception of the uh, of the U.S. inside the U.S. is so different from what's outside, and uh, we have to organize ourselves so that we can communicate. Better, uh, uh, better around the diaspora and also within Africa, and uh, and uh, we have to educate the people, uh, you know, our people as the true as what true reality is, because if you depend upon what you see on uh, on, on, on broadcast television, uh, the major newspapers, and 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 a lot of the books you're going to get the ruling class perspective of what's going on. 
And because and, and that is why people, even though they're not in the ruling class, carry out the ruling class interests because that's what they're getting, uh, you know, from the media. You know, on the, on the, on the international scene, Brother Africa, uh, they, one of the things, there's a certain uh, real uh, polity that exists. In other words, uh, there are Western nations who are in lockstep with the, U, lockstep with the U.S. because their position is that in order to maintain, you know, hegemony, uh, the kind of atrocities the U.S. commit is good for them. I'm talking about I'm, I'm talking about the mass of people. I'm talking about the, the ruling elite in those Western nations. And so, therefore, we have to understand that fundamentally, you know, uh, that exists. So we we can't dissuade ourselves, delude ourselves in believing that in fact that uh, that the people who understand this this this, this, this inequities that are inflicted by the U.S. Uh, understanding that uh, there is some there is some support among Western elites in terms of this kind of insanity that's being pervaded by the U.S. But in the U.S., in terms of how do you get the, the people you know nationally, how do you get the people engaged, how do you get them to understand that this, these policies are detrimental to their own survival? It's simply a question in terms of institutions. I think that's the only way you can really do it. And, but we need institutions that we can sustain on a daily basis. And the, and the question is that those among us who have access to resources, those about us who can afford to fund those kind of projects, they must, for first and foremost, understand, wake up and understand, you know, uh, what the situation is. And they, in turn, can fund these, uh, institutions in which we desperately need in terms of making sure that we can provide information to our people 24 hours a day. But this is a very difficult process because we're trying to get people to disregard a whole lot of conditioning. Uh, as Brother Anthony said, people go to school and they get, they get information that's not true. They read a lot of times, they look at television, look at the news, and they guess real. But it's 90% of it is, is false. So people have been uh, internalized a certain amount, uh, internalized a certain idea, which doesn't, doesn't square with reality, but nonetheless, in their minds, they think it's real. And so, therefore, we have to undercut all of that. And the only way we can do that is we talk about institutions which we can sustain on a 24-hour day, uh, uh, some days a week, 365 days a year, in terms of combating that. Short of that, I think what has to happen that parents, parents, parents of, who are well-meaning, African parents, uh, working-class parents, I think it's important that they educate their children in terms of how the system works. Uh, in addition to that, educating them on how it works to insist you know, academic excellence, because the only way we're going to ultimately defeat this insanity is that we have to have a clear, very clear understanding in terms of how this capitalism works, because if we don't, we'll continue to be deceived by the system. And that's precisely what it's designed to do, to deceive. So, therefore, the question that, so the answer to your question, Brother Africa, I think it takes, it's going to take institutions. Institutions, that is the key. And so the struggle is obviously institutions in terms of providing clarity for people, to get them to, to, to sort of um, um, deconstruct, to sort of look at the situation and to understand, you know, how it applies to his or her life. So I think that is the key. You know, this, on the final point on this paper that Jim Carter wrote in terms of giving a presentation at his church, he gave a real interesting analysis of the historical making of the United States from its origin to the present as well as to the future when he stated that the United States has also invaded or bombed dozens of countries and supported nearly every single right-wing dictatorship in the world since the end of World War II. It has overthrown or attempted to overthrow dozens of foreign governments since 1949 
and has actively sought to crush nearly every single people's liberation movement over the same period. It has also meddled in scores of elections in countries that are allies and adversaries alike. Your response to that categorization of the history of this is what America has been and continue to be. I think it's accurate. I think I think it's very accurate. It has it has overthrown or attempted to throw dozens of governments, uh, you know, uh, throughout its history, and it has intervened in the in the internal affairs of several countries, both of its friends and uh, and its enemies, and it continues to do so. And uh, and uh, and I and I think it speaks a, a a a great deal about the arrogance and hypocrisy of the U.S. Uh, because uh, that there's a big furor in the U.S. now over Russian alleged Russian meddling in U.S. elections. But however, you know, people don't express that same outrage when the U.S. meddles in the uh, in the elections of other countries. And it openly uh, it openly boasts about it. It doesn't uh, that does not attempt to hide that it is that it does intervene in other countries' elections. You know, I, I think there's no question about the history. The history is very clear on that point. Uh, John Stockwell wrote a couple of books in terms of U.S. foreign policy. John Stockwell, of course, the former CIA agent. Uh, Philip A.G. also talked about the strategies behind in terms of, you know, the uh, the um, the uh, colonization, you know, of, of, of states throughout the, throughout the world. You know, particularly when you look at Africa, you t- look in terms of the elimination of very powerful leaders. You know, Kwame Nkrumah, Sekou Toure, Ezekiel in Nigeria, uh, um, uh, even uh, Dene Kamathi in terms of uh, inf- the intelligence received from from the UK and the US in terms of his whereabouts. Uh, you talk about people like Thomas Ankara. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on in terms of uh, even Nelson Mandela. He wasn't assassinated, but uh, his whereabouts were, 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 were communicated, you know, uh, to uh, officials right there in South Africa, right from the U.S. CIA. So clearly this notion in terms of U.S. involvement in terms of people's politics with this whole purpose of undermining their development is something that's very, very well substantiated. Uh, I think when we talk about the assassination of leaders, the U.S. has no qualms in terms of assassinating leaders. It has no, no qualms about that. Right now in Africa, they, got, they have over 36 different operations going on simultaneously in Africa. And many of those operations uh, hinges around the liquidation of those Africans in the populace who are capable of leading their people to liberation. So there's a notion in terms of killing people is not a new strategy. In fact, one of the things when we want to bring it home, we talk about Operation Condor. Operation Condor was peculiar uh, in the sense that it was in our own, so, so, quote unquote, our own backyard. This was in Central and South America, in which the U.S., you know, uh, we, in terms of its military might and in terms of the, dollar, the dollars, uh, propped up all kind of right wing governments uh, for the sole purpose of eliminating, you know, progressive opposition. Uh, and this is something going for a long, long time. In the process of Operation Condor, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives simply because the U.S. provided intelligence and or weaponry or actually militarily trained these, 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 these governments for the sole purpose of assassinating 
large swaths of your of your population. So this notion in terms of killing, notion of assassination to maintain this hegemony is nothing new. So anybody who knows the history knows damn well that the U.S. doesn't have a problem in terms of assassinating people. In fact, uh, when you look at Africa and you look at in terms of the the, the, the the department in terms of leadership in Africa, it's regulated in terms of the activities of the CIA and as well as MI5 and, and the rest of these, these Western intelligence organizations' uh, ability in terms of actually eliminating people, you know, who, who, who ideas challenge the hegemony of the West. So it's nothing new. You're absolutely correct. That's precisely what they do. Killing is what America does best. You know, take Brother Moses, final thoughts on this article? I'm away from Brother Moses. What I will do right now was just ask y'all this million-dollar question in terms of what is the motivation for Jimmy Carter to be so direct, brutal, honest about the history and the makeup of this country and why the press has not taken up on this particular information that he just recently articulated about the reality of the U.S.? Well, Jimmy Carter isn't the first person to recognize the imperialism of America and the U.S. government uh, and this, this history of wars. Uh, the press has never taken up this to anybody who uh, who uh, proclaims this, uh, and uh, and the press is in the pockets of the bourgeoisie, the ruling class, the one percent. And they're protecting their interests, their property interests, their their political institutions, and uh, and so you know this. It's no surprise uh, that the press is not going to take this up. Thank you. Well, you know, Jimmy Carter talked about the fact that he he considers the American government an oligarchy with unlimited bribery capability. Uh, that's just a mouthful. And the question is in terms of motivation. I think Jimmy Carter, he's he's an old man. Uh, he doesn't have anything to fear, so he's going to live his life. So if they were to assassinate him, it's to really no avail. I mean, he's going to say what he has to say simply because he lived his life. So he's not concerned about that. Uh, if he were young, I suspect that he'd probably hold his tongue. He wouldn't actually be so forthright uh, in terms of, you know, his analysis in terms of the U.S. government. Um, I think that, um, you know, when he talks about the, the oligarchy, with unlimited bribery potential or capability. I think that the reason why the media won't touch that is because he's exactly right. He sums it up in terms of the corruption of the system in a very few words. And so the media is, is um, 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 hesitant to actually actually provide any information that's going to provide the masses of any kind of clarity in terms of the overall functioning of the government. So therefore, in, as far as the media is concerned, it's in their interest to ensure uh, that the people don't uh, have access to what Jimmy Carter's words because the words speak And keeping in mind also is that we ha- we have to understand when we talk about six corporations controlling the entirety of the news that we see, hear, and read, then clearly uh, this, this, this is the opportunity in terms of better redefine, better defining what people will read, what people have access to, is much more circumspect, and so therefore it's much easier for them you know, to ensure that words like oligarchy with unlimited bribery potential or capability uh, is t- totally eliminated. In other words, people not have an opportunity to actually even hear about, you know, Jimmy Carter's words. So 
I'm not I'm not I'm not confused at all in terms of you know why the media does what it does. It does what it does simply because of the role of propaganda. Your response, Brother Anthony. Yes, I I I concur with the points uh, Brother Robert and Brother Haki made, and would add, I think it's of significance that this article came from Telesaur, and uh, which is uh, which is a, a a media operation that is outside the U.S., not within it. So uh, so so you know people that don't have access to alternative sources of information are very limited in terms of the information they're able to get about the implications of U.S. policy around the world. It really becomes important uh, to have alternative sources of information in order to be well-informed. And it's also important to join an organization that is uh, working uh, for, for our people's liberation. Hi, right, Pennis. So we are done. We're going to pause for this call. So when we come back, we're going to talk about African Liberation Day, Palestine Day, 2019. How can this institution serve as a role to help move our people forward? We will have this discussion when we come back from this break. This is Africa That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. I'm all about peace and an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy, Mosaddegh, Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. Oh, 
bomber to bomber getting ready for Syria First black president, the masses were hungry But the same president just bombed an African country like Palestine Day have long and glorious histories. Uh, This year marks the 43rd year that the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, is commemorating African Liberation Day, Palestine Day. Our theme this year is Generations of Resistance and Revolts, Rebellions and Revolutions as Illuminated in Cuba, Haiti, Libya, Palestine, and Venezuela. Smashed the repression industrial complex worldwide, remembering and honoring the birthdays of Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X. This is a Pan-African and International Revolutionary Podcast Symposium that will take place Saturday, May 18th, 2019, from 12 noon to 3 p.m., Eastern Standard Time, U.S. And uh, check out our website at www.a-aprpgc.org for more information and also a link uh, to to check out the uh, symposium. Or call us at 202-239-2676. So, Anthony, this year you're saying the people don't have to go nowhere. They can stay right in their home and help celebrate African Liberation Day by just picking up a phone or going on the computer and participate. Can you tell people who are some of the invitees or groups or movements where they will get a chance to hear firsthand what is happening? Certainly. Uh, among some of the or- invited organizations are our friends of the Congo, uh, the uh, um, Arnold August, uh, Jafar Jafari of uh, uh, the Arab American uh, Palestine uh, 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 c- c- Committee, and uh, various other organizations and individuals will be speaking and uh we're also asking people to send in uh solidarity statements in support of african liberation day and palestine day now notice this year this particular african liberation day palestine day is paying tribute to the masses of african people or the masses in general why is that Because historically, it has been 
the masses of working and struggling oppressed and poor people that have uh, that have stood up and upheld our revolutionary cultural values and uh, and defended our land against uh, all forms all manners of uh, uh, oppression including racism, capitalism, imperialism, Zionism, and the oppression of women. And you know, uh, we honor them for their work. Yes. Brother Anthony, the theme, you talk about generations of resistance, revolt, and revolution. That seems to imply the African people is at war, and they have not lost the war, as some people may suppose. What do you say to that, that narrative? Uh, that is correct. The struggle is continuing, and uh, even though we've uh, we, uh, we've suffered uh, numerous setbacks over the centuries, we still continue to organize, rebel, fight, and resist, and uh, and uh, plan and conduct revolution in order to gain our freedom. And uh, it, and it is true that uh, that we are oppressed worldwide still, but we have not stopped fighting, and uh, we and and, uh, and to ensure our victory, we need to get better organized, and uh, that is the thing that it, that is impeding our progress, is our lack of organization. Against the forces of neocolonialism Which is the primary mechanism By which our people are oppressed today Now Brother Anthony For those who may have done Some research on the concept Of Pan-Africanism And what it means to be a Pan-Africanist One of the core components of Pan-Africanists Is to make Africa primary how does this institution fit in terms of that concept of Africa being primary, but at the same time recognize the importance of having relationship with other liberation movements? Certainly. Well, one of the things uh, that uh, uh, one of the things that that uh, that might set us apart from other uh, formations that tend uh, to de- we we date African Liberation Day. From its founding in Ghana in 1958, at the conclusion of the first conference of independent a- African states that was held in Accra, and to commemorate that, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, 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 as leader of the Convention's People Party, organized Af- the, the first African Liberation Day then called African Freedom Day, on April 15th, 1958. And uh, also, and also as a show of solidarity and support for the Palestinian liberation struggle, we also commemorate Palestine Day, which was started uh, when, uh, uh, the, uh, when Palestine was partitioned by uh, the forces of capitalism in May 1948, and uh, we recognize that uh, that the uh, that the Palestinian people and Africans have uh, have much in common, uh, both historically, culturally, 
and also principally because we're fighting against a common enemy. Imperialism, Zionism, capitalism, and all other forms of oppression such as racism. Okay, before we bring Brother Hockey, Brother Moses in, Brother Anthony, can you talk about a little bit about the history of the organization that we've been sponsored? Who is or what is the AAPRPGC? And how can people find more about how to participate and join them if they have an interest? Certainly. Uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, was founded in 19 and uh, uh, 1967 when Kwame called for its formation in the Handbook of Re- Revolutionary Warfare. And, it's, uh, and the purpose is to bring all the struggling liberation organizations in Africa together into one organizational force that could bring about the objective of Pan-Africanism, which is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. And uh, our purpose is to bring about an organization that could give political direction to this struggle. People can find out more about it by visiting our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. They can also call 202. Oh, okay. So go finish, brother. Answer. Finish your information. Sure. Yeah, sure. They can also call 202-239-2676 for more information. Uh, brother, brother Haki, when we think about African Liberation Day, you are being past participants at these institutions, you and Brother Moses. Why is this institution important to the future well-being of our people from your perspective? Well, I, I think it's important, number one, because it provides information. Uh, it sort of gives a, a, a link between the struggle, you know, for the African struggle and the struggle of various uh, national struggles throughout the, throughout the world. So it sort of brings into focus in terms of the importance, in terms of why we have to have these kind of movements. I think oftentimes people don't necessarily get the, the, the correlation between movements here and movements there, and I understand that it's all part of, part of a hold. Uh, so I think uh, by participating in African Awareness Day, uh, after Liberation Day, um, it, uh, it it gives us a, a, a thorough backdrop in terms of why you know these kind of relationships are very very important in terms of the aspirations of not only the oppressed people but African people specifically. Uh, also, I, I I think that you know it, it's just just the whole notion in terms of understanding the importance of organization. I think you know being part of something you know that's uh, that's committed in terms of the liberation of the people. I think it's something that we have to think seriously about. We're talking about the economies in the great decline, and no matter how many people the U.S. bombs, the amount of people go to war with, the reality is that the number one power in the world is China, and that's not going to change. Uh, so no matter how many people the, the U.S. continue to kill, uh, that's, that, that's, that's not going to change. So uh, it comes upon us in terms of just a defensive uh, uh, approach to the situation, or the being in a position, you know, to, to, to adequately be able to, to 
define the, the parameters in which we have to conduct the struggle in terms of moving forward. Because after all, one of the things, you know, we, you know, irrespective of our, uh, uh, you know, our politics, our ideologies, one of the things we have to understand is that, you know, without a strong and unified socialist Africa under scientific socialism, there is no way conceivable for any Africa anywhere in the world to be free. So we have to recognize that fundamental reality. That is a struggle. And not only are in a, a strong, unified socialist Africa with free African people throughout the world, it will free, it will free humanity throughout the world. Because this whole paradigm in which, you know, which is being, being dictated by the West for so long of, you know, dog eat dog, uh, that kind of paradigm goes out the window. And you have a more humane approach in terms of how governments, how, how, how society should be governed. And because Africa has the overwhelming number of resources that the world needs in terms of, in terms of, in terms of you know, its economies, then Africa being in a strategic position in terms of creating a scenario under which, uh, you know, in order to receive those those resources, then we 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 which want to achieve a holistic approach to the world in which you know justice, love, and harmony becomes the the norm and not the exception. So I think that for that reason, you know, it's incumbent upon people, all people, but specifically African people, you know, to to participate in African Liberation Day because it serves the interests of humanity. And brother Moses. Why should people participate and support African Liberation Day, Palestine Day? African Liberation Day is a day that we come together, we celebrate the victories that have that have gone on in the past, and and renew our renew our commitment to to the struggle. Uh, the the situation is 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 very very precarious across the the world but you know victory is is certain eventually and so we we have to we have to come together and and renew our our commitment uh and celebrate the victories that have gone on such as South Africa and apartheid and 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 uh other struggles uh in Zimbabwe uh and we we have to we have to recognize what has been accomplished and uh and renew our commitment to what what needs to be done. Thank you. Brother Anthony, before we close out, in terms of African Liberation Day, Palestine Day as an institution, one of the principal positions the APIPGC has taken uncompromisingly is that we are African people, no matter where we may be born at. Can you just talk a little bit about the importance of this identity issue and how it plays out in terms of future movement for our people? I th- is it is crucial. It is uh, very uh, crucial that we're clear on the question of our identity, and that we cannot uh, we cannot continue to divide ourselves based upon uh where we where we're born uh live or the or the la- the la- languages we speak or, or or the religions we practice we are oppressed because we're africans and because africa is our only just homeland and it has the resources needed by imperialism to perpetuate itself and with the uh, and with the and uh, with the liberation of Africa, 
it is only that uh that is the only uh goal that will that, that can put an end to imperialism and to the exploitation of human beings by one another worldwide so it is very important and it's important that we that we're not confused and that we have the correct understanding of our history that no matter where we live or born what religion we practice or what language we speak we are africans and that's been uh, and that can be and a careful study of our history will reveal that Okay, on that note, we're going to do our finding statements for today's program. And when we leave, we're going to have some lessons on history from Brother Kwame Ture, who is also one of the architects and one of those that work very hard to help build this institution we call the All-African People Revolutionary Party, D.C. So right now, I want to do Brother Moses. I think tonight the media is not what the media is not talking about. You'll find the thoughts for tonight, Brother Moses. Yeah, we have to recognize that the media is controlled by the one percent, uh, the ruling class, and and uh, it protects their interests. And it doesn't it doesn't print or or televise or or, or over the radio talk. About anything that's 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 gonna threaten the 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 existence of this capitalist system, imperialism is still running rampant, and uh, and they the news media protects it and uh, fosters it and perpetuates it, and so we have to understand that we have to have alternative sources of news and information. If we are to be clear about what's going on in the world today and the struggles that need to be done, um, this is this is fundamental, and uh, we have to understand that. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. We now we move to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, the final thoughts on the theme tonight: what the media is not talking about, and your announcements. Uh, first, let me just say African Awareness will be traveling the road of liberation and freedom to Cuba. We'll be going to Guantanamo, San Diego de Cuba, and Havana. This trip takes place July 24th to July 31st. For more information, please call us, 202-714-9435. Email us at African Awareness Association, or one word, number two, at gmail.com. We encourage people to come to Cuba firsthand and see for themselves uh, the marvelous work that the Cuban uh, government uh, has achieved in terms of being a real benefit to the masses of people there in Cuba and throughout the world. Uh, and my final statement, Brother Africa, is very, very simple. Uh, you know, the media job is not to not to enlighten us. It's not to tell us the truth. Our job has to be that we have to seek the truth. We must join organizations. We must create institutions dedicated to the truth. Uh, that is the only thing that's going to, in the final analysis, the only thing that's going to com- combine us together, is the only thing that's going to make it possible for us to excel, is the only thing that makes it possible for us to defend ourselves, you know, uh, given the um, traumatic uh, 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 situation 
given the given the deterioration of society, uh, given the potential for in terms of uh, harbor things happening, uh, without some without without the institutions without that unity, then it's very very impossible to understand to stand tall. So we have to have those institutions. We need that unity. Uh, and as always, I encourage the audience you know to unravel the matrix, and uh, I'll see you guys next week. Thank you, Brother Lackey, for your contribution to today's program. And, Brother Anthony, your final thoughts and how can people participate to this African Liberation Day Palestine Day event? Certainly. Uh, First of all, I want to let let people know that if they are, uh, please check out African Liberation Day Palestine Day 2019. Uh, for more information, they can visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org or call 202-239-2676 and RSVP to ALD at a-aprp-gc.org. And uh, some posting will take place from 12 noon to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. Also, my final thought for tonight is that it is incumbent upon all people to join an organization that is working for our liberation. We'd like to thank you, Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. And to our listening audience, you have been listening to Africa on the Move. It's a community project of the African Awareness Association. And if you have any views, comments, or any questions concerning this program or others, please write us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at Gmail. What we're going to do right now, we're going to close out with a song by Peter Tosh, your African, followed by Lessons from the Struggle as it relates to Lessons that Brother Kwame Ture articulated as it relates to the movements in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. So we will look forward to seeing you next Sunday. And like always, we will speak truth to power and to evaluate value information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. So let's go forward to Peter and then we'll end with Brother Kwame Ture. Welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, 
Within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance of the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60s and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. That's if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. 
certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. 
We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. <laughs> Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in a society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in the society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, 
joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. Thus, students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood, and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and as a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. 
But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country, immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know us Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this 
position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Nick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. 
He said, no, I'll tell you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Because <laughs> he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind, even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is of course the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point then. The final point then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? 
But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the Claire Poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you.